In the summer of, of 2010, I was fresh off my junior year of college, and I traveled internationally for the first time to Israel-Palestine of all places, right? At the time, I was in the midst of a dramatic faith and life transformation. I had lost my spiritual community, including many of my friends, because the questions that I was asking at the time about what it really means to love people as they are, the way that God loves people, people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, people who practice other religions, well, these questions were deemed out of bounds by the spiritual community that I had been a part of. And at that point, I didn't know exactly what I believed. I was trying to figure out the kind of person I wanted to be, who I was. And to be clear, in the midst of all of this, pastor was not the expected outcome of the process. But while on this trip to the Holy Land, we did visit holy sites. We spent time in Jerusalem and Bethlehem. We, we wandered in the hillsides of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus gave some of his own sermons. While we visited these sites and more, the trip wasn't really about revering these monuments, these ancient stones. It was about listening to the stories of the people, the living stones, comprising this deeply divided, sacred, and war-torn land. Along the way, we met with both Israeli and Palestinian peacemakers, activists, just everyday people trying to live life fully. And one of those that we met with was the then Archbishop of Galilee, Abuna Elias Shakur. Abuna, father as he is affectionately called, is a Palestinian Christian who grew up in a small Arab Christian village in Galilee. But as a young boy in the early 1940s, his life was forever altered. A continent away amidst the horrors of the Holocaust, Jewish refugees fled across the world seeking safe haven. Many arrived at the shores of the United States, but xenophobia led many of them to literally be turned away in their boats. Meanwhile, some fled to a region known as Palestine, where a fledgling Jewish army largely comprised of those who had escaped Europe's atrocities, began rounding up whole villages of families like little Elias's and removing them to what are now some of the longest standing UN refugee camps in the world. These families, forced from their homes, homes that were then literally given as they were, dirty dishes still on the counter, food half-eaten, toys strewn across the living room floor, given to refuge-seeking Jewish families, like those turned away at the U.S. border. In the ensuing days and weeks and years, the total number of Palestinian families removed, like little Elias's, totaled more than 750,000. The founding of the State of Israel is the story of one people's incomparable tragedy, leading to the violent displacement, the incomparable tragedy of another. There our group was, wrapped with attention as we listened to this holy man from Galilee sharing his story, speaking to us atop the mountain of light, as they call it, about a level of grief and injustice and peace 
that none of us could really even begin to fathom. And we were there that day listening to Abuna because as one who had lived through these horrors, Abuna had somehow grown into a man of peace, having been twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and receiving other international peace awards. Right? Meeting Abuna, hearing his story and taking in his, his powerful message of peaceful and yet active, nonviolent resistance to the forces of death and despair, it, it shook this 20-year-old to his core. It changed me in my faith in a way that, uh, that, that forever altered my course. It challenged me to keep asking myself, what would it look like for me to risk giving my life to taking a stand? To stand as a bridge in a world of hostile divisions, even when it makes people uncomfortable and comes with a cost. Of the many profound lessons that Abuna shared with us that afternoon was this. He said, friends, if you are pro-Israel, on behalf of the Palestinian children, I call unto you, give further friendship to Israel. They need your friendship. But stop interpreting that friendship as automatic antipathy against me, the Palestinian who is paying the bill for what others have done against my beloved Jewish brothers and sisters in the Holocaust and elsewhere. And, he went on, if you have been so enlightened enough to take the side of the Palestinians, bless your hearts, he said. Take our side. But if taking our side means that you become one-sided against my Jewish siblings, then no thank you. For God's sake, we do not need your friendship if it means creating one more enemy. We need one more common friend. Now, Abuna is known throughout the world for his bold, courageous, defiant vision of love and the ways that it has birthed new life and possibilities where they seemed all but impossible. In the most particular form that we were participating in, getting to experience when we were there, was the building of the first intentionally interreligious K-12 school in the state of Israel, bringing together teachers and students of Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and Drew's backgrounds in a place so segregated that this literally, it really does not happen. Right? There are Jewish schools and there are Arab Palestinian schools. But at the Mar Ilias Educational Institute atop the Mountain of Light in Galilee, students of all backgrounds not only study your traditional K-12 courses together, but they also engage all throughout that journey in studying and dialoguing about love and forgiveness, about peace and justice. That is, in our, our hostile world, intent on keeping us divided, on seeing the other as an enemy, as less than human, so as to justify the war and the violence and seeing them as collateral damage, in a world where our leaders continue to use twisted theologies to justify fear of others, in order to maintain the status quo. In this 
world, our world, Ilya Shakur imagined another world and rallied others around that vision in order to make it a reality. And in so doing, created a school of love. Not sentimental love, but the fierce kind of love that is embodied through conflict, across differences, not by avoiding them. And over the years, I've wondered, what, what stirred his imagination, this imagination within him? Right? Who affirmed and nurtured it? Who fanned those embers so that they might become a flame? Where was that vision deepened, challenged, expanded? What, what made him believe, gave him the audacity to believe in this kind of possibility when everyone else told him it was impossible? What gave him the courage to pursue it when no one else was? And part of the answer, as he attests to it himself, to go back to our theme from last week of the family as our first school of love, part of the answer no doubt lies with his parents and the faith, the imagination, the kind of love that they instilled in him, encouraged in him, but also that they modeled for him as a young child. But also, as he recounts it, even from them, it was the stories from Scripture of Jesus, like those we read this morning, like others, the kind of life in love that Jesus dared to live. It was the church, the community that kept these stories alive, not, not merely as something that we're supposed to believe, ideas that we're supposed to intellectually assent to, about something that happened once upon a time long, long ago, but rather as a movement that we are called, invited to get swept up into ourselves. And I've been captured. I've been captured lately, as you may have gathered over the last few weeks if you've been here, by this framing of the movement that Jesus started as a school of love, which he then left to his disciples and anyone in every generation since who desired that joy and new life that's made possible through it. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. What kind of love? A love that casts out fear. The fear that has to do with punishment or rejection. What kind of love? Well, those who say, I love God, and yet go on hating or diminishing anyone, seeing those people as the enemy, well, Scripture says they're liars. For if you do not love someone whom you have seen, if you do not affirm their dignity, their right to life, then you cannot love God whom you have not seen. What does the Lord require of you? The prophet Micah asks. At its core, it's not about all the religious stuff that we've turned it into. All that can change, can go away. What does the Lord really, really require of you? Do justice. 
Love mercifully. Walk humbly. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Which we know is not because they've earned it or are good enough. Lord, have mercy. They are as fickle-hearted as every single one of us. No, but because that's what love does. It affirms their dignity in the midst of it. Now go, I have appointed you. The fruit that I have borne in my life, I have appointed you to go and bear fruit too. Fruit that will last. And I wonder, what, what might it mean for us to be, to become more fully in this season of stewardship, for us to pledge our commitment to building a school of love? What might it mean to see our worship services, our own devotion, and the ways that God would speak to us, would challenge us, would call us forward through this lens of love? To see how we structure our church through this lens. To see how our building gets used all throughout the week. The visual messages that one receives either driving by the building or once they come inside through this lens of it being a school of love. To see what kind of books we would read together in those small groups during the week through this lens of love. To see our immediate neighborhood and our neighbors throughout the county and the world through this kind of love. Now, as a school of love, we are not told in black and white terms what to believe. This is what love is, and simply be obedient to it. Don't question it. But rather, faithfulness looks like keeping Jesus, that, that model that he set for us in view, as we wrestle with, as we question, as we push one another, challenge one another, as we discern what that might look like in the everydayness of life. As we share stories openly, vulnerably, about our struggles to live out this kind of love. Because as we begin to do that, we're not really just talking we're not merely just talking about love, but we are beginning to embody it ourselves as a community. We're, we're practicing it, getting it wrong, but then also practicing those forms of repair so that as we go out into the world, we can more fully, boldly, courageously live it out there in the wild as well. Right, implicit in all of this is, of course, to name the ways that scripture and theology have been used not for love, not toward our joy being truly fulfilled as Jesus says his love offers, but used to justify violence and abuse, used to keep people trapped, used to deny people their humanity and their dignity. It implies, it invites an honest grappling with how the version of love that many of us learned in our families and churches 
where, where love looked like making yourself small in order to serve others, or like taking care of others even when you're beyond exhausted, when you feel it's selfish to say what you need, where love looks like a party where everyone is happy and just getting along, but never the ability to have those difficult conversations or hold one another accountable for bullying or teasing, where forgiveness is equated with being a, a doormat, essentially. Forgive, forget, every time it happens, just keep moving, just keep going through it, no change. Where love looks like being nice and polite and friendly and, and never creating conflict or, or disrupting that toxic behavior. As one of my theology professors, Mara Rivera, has written, such communities may not necessarily transform the, the operating norms of the broader society, but it is hard to imagine the emergence of social movements without communities that envisioned a different world in which people could flourish. It's hard to imagine the emergence of people like Abuna Ilias Shakur without such communities. It's hard to imagine the emergence of initiatives like the school that he founded without such communities nurturing stories and visions of love as we seek to do. And so in this season of stewardship, I wonder if we are to be a community that courageously and boldly is committed to being such a school of love, what life-giving, community-building, barrier-crossing, division-breaking possibilities might just spring up in our little corner of the world? What do you have to offer? What might you pledge in time and passion of your talents, of your presence, of your money, to make this vision a reality. May it be so. For your healing and joy, for the healing and joy of all the world. Amen.